Well, how many of you know that the way that you see things, your, your point of view often dictates the way you live your life? The way that you actually see the world around you dictates the way you live. I know here in the room we've got some movie buffs. And you often see this in movies. And one of the, maybe the most famous movies you've seen this is in, in Jaws. Any Jaws fans in here? I know we got some movie buffs. Anybody just love Shark Week in July? Like Shark Week's just where it's at. 1974, Universal Studios hires young Steven Spielberg to create the first movie of its kind, Jaws. Filmed outside of, uh, of um, Cape Cod, it's going to be a live action film shot on the open water. Never been done before. And Spielberg has this brilliant idea. We're going to build a 25-foot mechanical shark to shoot this movie with. If you've seen Jaws, this was, uh, this was Bruce, right? Bruce was the name of the shark for the movie. Here was the thing. The, the shark took months to make, delayed filming, and cost $250,000. But when it arrived... Spielberg was stoked. He was ready. But here was the problem. The moment they put Bruce in the water, he didn't work. He, he rusted quickly. They had to repaint him every night. He sank to the bottom of Nantucket Sound every time they put him in the water. And so Spielberg had a problem. He planned to shoot this movie on the open water with this shark, but the shark didn't work. And he thought this movie would be just really cheesy and would bomb, so he had to make a decision. And this decision was to change the point of view. Now imagine you're watching Jaws, and this is what you see floating on the top of a water. A mechanical shark that doesn't work. You're not going to be too afraid. So instead, what Spielberg decided to do was instead of showing you the shark, he was going to show you the suspicion of the shark. And so now you saw an underwater shot of what looked to be a shark and somebody being pulled underneath. That's a lot scarier. Jaws ended up becoming a movie that changed the way movies were filmed. It grossed 260 million bucks, which is a lot for 1975. It changed the way that movies were produced, the way that movies were promoted, the way that movies were released, and has gone down as many of people's greatest films ever filmed. And the reason we love Jaws was not because of the mechanical shark, Bruce the Mechanical Shark. The reason we love Jaws was because it was filmed with a different point of view. So reality in life is your point of view determines how you see things. How many of you have ever stood at the base of a roller coaster, stood in line and you're ready to get up and you're like, this looks kind of scary, but it's not too bad. And then you get up there and you click, 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 click. And you're at the top looking down 350 feet and you realize, okay, I don't know that I'm ready for this, right? That ham sandwich is not sitting very well right now. Point of view changes things. You've probably been in a job where you first day on your job, you go, man, I don't know that I could do this job. Or the person in your cubicle is like chewing with their mouth open, and you think, I don't know that I can work next to this person. And the next thing you know, you're good friends with them. What changed? Point of view. You know the old saying, you can't judge a book by its cover. When you change your point of view and you actually read the book, it changes every situation. And this is true in life, but I think maybe the place this is most true in our life, the place that the point of view makes the most difference in your life comes to how you see God. Because your faith and what you think of God is determined by the angle that you've seen him. Here in this room, we've got people that have walked from all kinds of different walks of life and who've spent different time in church. Some of you grew up in church. You grew up with the felt board. How many of you guys? The flannel graph board. 
I got some flannel graph bar people in here. In Sunday school, right? Moses, right, and his staff and the long beard, good head of hair, right? Some of you, this might be the first time you've been in church in a long time or ever. And our perspective and our point of view of Jesus comes from different places. And depending upon your point of view, it drives how you see Jesus in your life and in the world and for who he truly says he is. So this morning, we're going to kick off this new Christmas series by looking at who Jesus says he is. But we're going to look at an exchange in Matthew chapter 16, where we see Jesus ask his disciples, who do you say I am? And I think this is a really powerful exchange because it shows us not just the power of point of view, but the power of a changing perspective. And I hope as we dig into this, we're going to see this Christmas that Jesus wants to change each of our points of view and to bring us closer to him. One of the things I love about Christmas is it's this time we call Advent, which Advent is, if you don't know the definition of Advent, it means, it means arrival. And so really, as Christians, as believers, we look at Christmas as this already but not yet kind of moment. Like we're looking back at what's already happened, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so Advent's this really cool time for us to lean in. Because each of us have heard the Christmas story, and so this year we're not going to talk about shepherds, and we're not going to talk about angels as much, or wise men. We might talk about them a little bit, but what we're going to talk about is Jesus and why did he really come. See, when Jesus was born, 700 years before, there was a man named Isaiah. Somebody say Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, and Isaiah had been really the voice of God that God had used to speak to a king and to the nation. And God wanted to use Isaiah to speak a promise about the one that was going to come to fix what was broken. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, there's this promise that one's going to come fix this broken world. And so Isaiah, he, he says this. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, and behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means, Emmanuel means God with us. So there's this beautiful promise. And so for 700 years, the people of Israel were waiting for this king, this Messiah, this, the Christ that was going to come. And then in, in a little sleepy town, 700 and some years later, in a little sleepy town in Galilee, there's, there's a really nice guy getting ready to marry, a really nice girl, Mary and Joseph, and an angel comes to both of them. And Matthew captures what the angel says to Joseph. And he says this in, Joseph, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. He says this, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid. All that God is doing is from the Holy Spirit. But he says this, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means God saves, Yeshua. He would call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. And then he goes on to quote Isaiah and says, well, and just like Isaiah said, he will be God with us, Emmanuel. And so now Joseph and Mary have this point of view. They oh my gosh, like this guy we've been waiting on. This is the king. This is the savior. This is the Christ. He's here. But I wonder, and we're really left to wonder, what does the world think of him? What's their point of view? You know, the great author A.W. Tozer once said that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. So as we dig into this, as we're going to see what comes to mind when the disciples think about God and what the crowds think about God, I want you to ask yourself, what do you think about God? And if somebody came up to you and Jesus asked this question to you, who do you say that I am based on your point of view, how would you answer? 
So let's, let's dig into this. Grab your Bibles, open up Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew's the first book in your New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. And then we're going to see here this exchange that Jesus has with his disciples. Matthew 16, verse 13. See what Jesus has to say here. And just a little, a little background. So Jesus has been out doing miracles. Jesus has been out um, do, doing just incredible things and teaching. And there's a lot of crowds that start following him. We saw a few weeks ago in one of his miracles that, I mean, there was 20,000 people following Jesus. And so Jesus takes his disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Actually, let me show you a quick map. This is where Caesarea Philippi is, so you can get a picture in your mind of where it is. So it's way up north, right? So um, as you guys can see, it, it's, it's far up north, and there's some significance to this. So I'll tell you about it later. And so Jesus and his disciples are talking, and they're walking, and he, in this distant journey, there's probably only the 12 and maybe a few others that are with him. And so... Uh, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And notice what his disciples say. They said, well, verse 14, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So, so notice this. I mean, there's just this really interesting question. Like, who, who, who am I? Like, who do you guys think I am? You've been walking with me for some time. Who do you say that I am? And, but who, do, who does the crowd say about me? And so they think he's a prophet, right? He's out, he's speaking God's word like a prophet would. But he's been doing this healing, and he's been doing all this teaching and all these things. And so they're like, well, maybe you're a reincarnation of Elijah or Jeremiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Or one of them. And it makes sense. Maybe you're some miracle worker. The, 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 the Jewish people thought he was just... A miracle that the, the Pharisees thought he was a fraud. But Jesus says, and look at verse 15, he says, but who do you say I am? Right? Like, who, who do you say that I am? And how would you respond if you were asked that question? How many of you in, in your life are friends with somebody now that you would have never thought you'd be friends with? Like, I think at least one of us, at least all of us have at least one friend. We're like, you know, I just really didn't like that guy, right? Like, first time I met that person at school, I thought they were weird. Like, I look at my, like, best group of friends, you know, back home that I've been friends with for 25 years. Like, my buddy Trevor, when I met him, he was just too tall. Short guys, you know what I mean? Some people are just too tall, right? He was just too tall. Like, you know, my buddy Jay was just too spastic. My buddy Nate, when I met him, we were 17, he had a mustache. I was like, come on, dude. Like, at 17, it's like peach fuzz. Come on. I didn't like any of those guys. And now they were in my wedding. I was in theirs. We've, like, been best buddies for 25 years. What changed? Point of view, right? Like, you, you get to know people by spending time with people. Point of view changes everything. The, the crowds that followed Jesus around, they saw his miracles and they heard his teaching. But his disciples, they saw that he lived it. Like, they, they heard his jokes. And you know Jesus was funny, right? I, I mean, he's the son of God. He was hilarious. They, they heard his jokes. They, they, they heard him pray. They spent time with him. They saw he was a real dude. He was the same guy behind closed doors as he was on the mountain. And so they notice something unique about him. And so Jesus says, well, okay, the crowd thinks that I'm this miracle worker, prophet dude. Who do you say I am? And notice what Peter says. Guys, if you have your Bibles with you and you've got a highlighter, highlight this verse, star it, check it, do something, because this is so impactful. Look what he says. Simon Peter replied, you are the what, church? Christ, the son of the living God. Quick note, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Just so you guys know, 
probably knew that. Christ meant Messiah or Savior. So he's not Jesus H. Christ, like Jesus Herald Christ. No, he's like Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, right, who is the Christ, just so you know, if you guys were curious about that. So he's like, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Peter's like, you're the one that Isaiah was talking about 700 years ago. Like, you're here, and I see it, because my point of view has been right in front of you. If you're taking notes at home, I think here's one thing we can take away. It's that the, your view of Jesus is determined by your point of view. Like each of you in this room, your view of Jesus has been determined by your point of view, by how you're looking at him. Like some of us have been looking at Jesus as the world speaks about him. Some of us have looked at Jesus like the, like the flannel graph board when we were little kids and we hear these stories about Jesus and that's all we think about Jesus. Some of us look at Jesus because we spent time with Jesus. Every one of those is going to be determined by your point of view. How close to Jesus are you? See, if you ask the world right now who Jesus is, the world, people that aren't followers of Jesus, they're not very close to Jesus. They're looking at him afar. They're looking at him like he's a little object on a table. And they say, well, he was a great teacher. Or he was some spiritual guru. Or he was this, um, this really moral man who taught you what's best how to best treat people if you can. But if you read the Bible and what Jesus has to say about himself, he doesn't ever claim to be any of those things. He claims to be something crazy. He claims to be God. It's like C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or he's the divine son of God. He can't just be a good moral teacher. Peter's been following him. He's been up close. And so he, he's been seeing Jesus. He's been sitting at his feet listening to Jesus. So the way you see Jesus is determined by your point of view. How are you seeing him? What, how close are you? So Jesus, Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the, you're the Savior. You're the one I've been waiting on. You're the one that, that we talked about, Moses talked about in Genesis chapter 3. And he could understand that because his perspective was close. Now notice what Jesus says to him about this. He says this in verse 17. He says, well, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon Bar means son. Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in, where church? Heaven, my Father in heaven. Don't, don't miss this. This is huge. Jesus says, Peter, you didn't arrive at this truth on your own, but God has revealed this to you. Any amateur photographers in the room? I know I got a couple. I see a couple. Any professional photographers in the room? Because I need a Christmas card photo. Like we, can, <laughs> we can talk later. But like if you're a photographer in your room, you know there's something about catch, catching a picture in the right light, right? You got to have the right light. It, you know, that's why you don't want to take a picture in the sun, I guess, plus the shine, right? You want to like be in the shade. There's something about the right light. Well, this morning, I was thinking about this. I was walking into the bedroom. I, I'm an early riser. I get up at like 5.30. It's just, I like getting up before the kids. So I'm, I get up and Courtney was still asleep and I, I had to go back in the room to get, you know, my glasses because I'm farsighted. You guys remember that one. So I, I, I tiptoe in and I've got the light in the bathroom on. So there's a little bit of light. But as soon as I get in the room, it's pitch black. Can't see anything. Right? So I immediately like trip over the vacuum cleaner and like knock the iron off the ironing board and, you know, all that, right? So I grab my stuff and I turn, but all of a sudden I can see great walking back out. Why? Well, because the light was coming in this way. The light was coming in through the door. Like your light, your, your vision 
is determined by the amount of light that you, you see. You just open a door when it's dark outside. What? The, light, the darkness doesn't come into your house. What happens? The light invades the darkness. And so when we look at Jesus through the dark lens of a dark world, we're going to see Jesus as this faint character that we're not really sure who he is. But when we actually like, get close to Jesus and look at him through the right light, we look at him through the light of his word or through the light of his people or through the light of us just getting down on a knee and saying, Jesus, reveal to me who you are, we begin to actually see who he is. And all of a sudden, we can see he's not at all what the world has said he is. No, no, no. Jesus is he's something altogether different. Peter, what Jesus is saying is here to Peter is that, Peter, you've gotten close enough to me for God to reveal to, to you who I really am. He, he says, you can see everything about me because you've been close, and my Heavenly Father has revealed this to you. I, I borrowed a graph I want to show you. This is un, done by the Unstuck Church. It's a um, group of... Um, church consulting group, and I'm buddies with a couple of the guys that work there, and it's a great group, and we use a lot of their material here at Forefront. But here is what they can call the spiritual journey. Now, all of us are on here somewhere. And the reality is, praise God, that we're all in process, right? Like, we're never stuck, we're never final, we're never always, we're never going to get to the end, right, until one day we close our eyes and we wake up with God in heaven. But thankfully, we're never going to be stuck, that we're always in process. And so there's this reality that at some point, all of us, we're not very interested in learning about God. But then something happened, some, some situation happened in our life, or maybe the Lord moved, or we had a friend invite us to church or something, and we became spiritually curious. And, and, and at some point, that spiritual curiosity took hold of something inside of us, and we put our faith in Jesus, and we said, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah, right? And then from there, we, we go on to becoming disciples and become making disciples, and all of us are somewhere in the middle, probably, you know, unless you're, you know, sitting in the back row, and then you're on the right, right? You know, back row Baptist joke, you guys with me? All right, anyways, so, but, but take Peter. At some point, Peter was not interested at some point, you know, he was a Jew. He understood some things about, about, uh, about you know, faith and whatever. But at some point, he meets Jesus, and he becomes spiritually curious. How did Peter go from becoming spiritually curious? Like, who is this Jesus guy who's preaching in this boat next to me, who works this miracle? Oh, my gosh, he's a miracle worker. He's a prophet, maybe. To, to Peter in Matthew 16, saying that Jesus is the Son of God, that you are the Christ. Like, that's not just saying, when you say the Christ, like, that's... That's the, full, that's the full boat, right? That you are the son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. How did he go that far? How do we go from spiritually curious to believer? See, there's something in here that, that, that Jesus reveals to us in verse 17 that we need to understand. That at some point, while we don't understand it, it's part of the mystery of God, that God does something inside of us. He does something to, to stir us up. To, to speak into us. Maybe it's to ignite us or to ignite our spirit by his spirit. And at that point, we recognize that he's not just a prophet or a good teacher or some moral guru, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Somebody say Savior. Jesus is the Savior. That God does something there. We get close enough to Jesus that God then moves and helps us to see who he is. Does that make sense, guys? That's why your point of view matters. And if you don't ever get close enough to see Jesus for who he truly is, you'll never get this place. You'll never see Jesus is the Savior. You'll be stuck where the world is who thinks that Jesus is just this moral teacher. 
Peter got close enough. He sat at Jesus' feet. He saw that Jesus was truly the son of God. And he was able to say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. And I want to ask you, have you been there? Have you gotten to that place where you've been close enough to Jesus that you've said, he is who he says he is. He's not just a good teacher. He's the Savior. Because your point of view has the power to change everything. See, see notice what Jesus, notice this. Seeing Jesus in the right light reveals our true foundation. All of us are trying to build a foundation to stand on in our life, right? Like the reality is we want to build a foundation of security and comfort. Like that's natural. Look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Outside of food and shelter, you, want, you, you need comfort and, and, and security and these things. And so we, we try to build those things through careers and through relationships and all these things, which are all good things. Nothing wrong with any of that. But what Jesus is going to reveal to Peter next is that life, the life we are meant to live is truly built on the foundation of Jesus being the savior of the world. And that's what frees us to live the life we were created to live, a life of richness and fullness and relationships that we all desire. And so seeing Jesus as the Messiah, as the savior, as the Christ reveals our true foundation. Notice this, verse 18. Jesus says this. Remember, he just said, Peter, you didn't come to this on your own. Like, God revealed this to you because you got close enough to me. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Wouldn't that be cool if you were Peter to hear that, right? Like, yeah, you're Peter, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I mean, Peter was probably ready to run through a drywall. It wasn't drywall back then, but he was ready to run through something, right? Like, he was excited. And this is an interesting verse. Anybody grow up Catholic? You don't have to raise your hand if you did, but if you did, you understand, like, this is a, I love it. You know, isn't that funny? Like, yeah, I do. You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. But in the Catholic church, there's a lot of, a lot, a lot on this verse, right? This, this verse in the Catholic church is where the Pope comes from. It's the primacy of Peter as the doctrine of the Catholic church. Basically, that, that Peter was the rock that the church was going to be built on, and that Peter one day came to Rome, he became the Bishop of Rome, and then every one of Peter's descendants became, Peter was the first pope, and then his son was the next pope, and, and so on. And the primacy of Peter doctrine in the Catholic Church says that anything that a descendant of Peter says is taken as the word of God, right? As coming from the mouth of God. And this doctrine is in many ways based on this verse. And just so you guys know, this verse, we don't, we don't read this account in any other of the Gospels, right? Luke, Mark, John, we don't see this. It's only in Matthew. And so this is the verse that the Catholic Church says, this is, you know, Peter, you're the rock. And so it's really interesting because there's been a lot of thoughts on this. And, and I love to nerd out on a careful word study, as does Darren. I know Darren does too. And so when you look at this verse, it's really cool as you dive in because you're going to actually see something really interesting. And so I'm going to walk this with you guys through this. Okay, so Peter's name is Simon, Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus nicknames him Peter. Right? So Peter wasn't his first name. His real name was Simon, but his nickname's Peter. We don't know if this is the first time Jesus called him Peter or if he called him Peter, you know, when they were playing flag football or something like way before, but he's Peter. And so Jesus says, you are Peter, Petros, somebody, or Petros, somebody say uh, Petros. Okay, so Petros means little rock or, or stone. Okay, Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S, little rock or a little stone or a little boulder. So Jesus says, Peter, you're like this stone. 
And, you know, Peter, maybe Peter was like, like a little short, stocky dude, right, that played fullback, you know, middle linebacker, strong safety, you know, he's pretty good in his time. But, you know, he was, a, he was a stone. And so he says, Peter, on this Petros, I'm going to build, or, or Peter, you are a Petros, and on this Petra, somebody say Petra. Petra means rock, boulder, mountain. I'm going to build my church. Peter, on this little, on, Peter, you're this cute little stone, and I'm on this rock, this mountain. Jesus says, me, I'm the mountain. The statement that you said I'm the Messiah, yeah, I'm the mountain. Peter, you're the little, you're the little stone on the mountain. And at the time, they're on top of a mountain. I'll tell you about that in a second, where he says this. He brings it all together. He says, I'm going to build my church. So it's a play on words. It'd be like if you talk to Phil. And I said, hey, Phil, will you go fill up my coffee? Right? You guys get it? I know, that's bad. That's really bad. Or like, hey, Patty, can you go get me a hamburger? Right? Like that one's, yeah, that one's really bad too. I know there's not even, I've tr- struggling getting a good one. But you guys get it, right? Like, hey, Phil, go fill up my coffee. It's a play on words. Hey, Peter, hey, hey little rock on this big rock, I'm going to go build my church. And so the idea is that it, Peter's, Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you're the rock of the church. You're, the, Messiah, you're the, 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 the pope. He's saying, no, Peter, your statement that I'm the Messiah, you're the little rock on the big rock. Like, I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. I am the Christ. And on this rock, on me, I'm going to build my church. The word church is in Greek, ekklesia. Somebody say that. Ekklesia. Ekklesia. It means the gathering. It means the called out ones. It means the, the, the assembly it doesn't mean building, right? You guys remember this one? You know, here's the church. Remember, if I can do it right. Here's the church and here's the steeple, right? Open up the doors and what? See all the people. This is the church, guys. Not this. This is a building, right? This is a stone or a tent. That's the church. Here, everybody do that real quick. It's kind of fun. Probably looks really weird online. So, but that's the idea, guys. Like, this is the, pe- like, this is the church, right? That, this is us. And so Jesus is saying that, like, this church, you guys, your life is going to be built on the rock of Jesus being the Savior. And what does that mean for us? So here's a question I want you to, I want you to consider. This week, you're out talking to somebody at work, and somebody says, hey, hey, Ron, what is the church all about? And you had to answer that question. Like, how would you answer it? Like, if you had to say what the church was all about, what's the foundation of the church, what would you say? What would you say? Jesus. How did you say it? Jesus. I'm going to keep trying to build this thing. It's going to take a while. Some, of you, some, some people might say, well, it, it, we're called to take care of the poor. We're called to do good deeds. We're called to, be, to do charitable work. We're called to send missionaries across the globe. We're called to make disciples. You could say all these things, and it's, all those are good answers, right? Like, we are called to take care of the poor. We are called to take the gospel around the world. But what Jesus says right here, that the purpose of the church is, is the purpose of the church is to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That the church is built on the foundation, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And our function as a church is to proclaim that truth to the world. And so we send missionaries, and so we take care of the poor, and so we connect with community ministry and local food banks, and so we work with kids in Guatemala, and so... Dot, dot, dot. But the foundation is that the church is built on Jesus being the Messiah, 
If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, he, he talks about building a house. And he says, well, you know, if you build your house on the right foundation versus the wrong foundation, then your house is either going to stand in a storm or it's going to fall. Remember what he says? He says, you build your house on the rock. When the waves and the wind blow against it, it's not going to fall over. You build your house on the sand and the winds and the waves are going to knock it over. And so the idea is if we build our churches, if we build our lives, guys, on other things that aren't Jesus being the foundation, the rock, the mountain, then our house is going to blow over. If we build our church on this idea that we exist just for good deeds or we exist just to, to you know, provide care for, for people, those are great things, but what's going to happen when the storms of life come? It's going to blow us over. When we build our lives and our church on the fact that, oh, Jesus had a lot of good things to say, but the Bible really isn't going to tell me the best plan for my life, and it's kind of just a good tip, well, what's going to happen when the storm comes? Our house is going to boil over. But when we build our lives on the truth that Jesus is the Christ, and we build our churches and our homes and our lives and our families on the bedrock that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of heaven, who came out of heaven to this world to die for our sins and rise from the grave so we can experience life, then it doesn't matter what comes, how bad the storm, how heavy the winds, how strong the current, it will never blow over God's house. Amen? This is what Jesus is trying to tell us. Your point of view is so important. And so Jesus says, on this mountain, I build my church. Notice what he says next. 18b, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let me show you a picture. So this is a picture of where they were, and this is Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was an important place. Back in the Old Testament, it was where they worshipped the pagan god Baal, or Baal. And then when Greek mythology took over, and the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and everybody came in and conquered this area, they began to worship the Greek god Pan, who was a, a fertility god. And so each of these doors were like a door to where the gods would go and sleep during the winter. And so during the winter, these Greek gods, these Roman mythological gods, would go sleep during the winter, and they would go into this rock. You see, bottom left here, that's a cave, and that entrance was called the Gate to Hades. Somebody say Hades. Hades is the Greek god of the underworld. And, and so when the Bible uses the word Hades, it means death, Right? And so this was basically the portal to hell, right? Like, that's kind of how they looked at it. So this gate, so Jesus and his disciples are up on like a mountain over here, and they're looking down on this. And Jesus says, on this mountain, I build my church, talking about himself, but he's on a cliff. And the gate of hell, which he points to this, will not overcome it. Imagine the imagery. This is the gate to the underworld. This is the gate to death. And he said, now this gate will not prevail against my church. So what does that mean? How many of you have ever seen a war movie where the um, opposing army is charging with gates in front of them? You ever seen that, right? Like they're riding on a horse, right, and they got like a gate, right, and they slam into the front line with a gate. You guys ever seen that? No, because that'd be the dumbest thing ever, right? <laughs> like why would you take a gate into war? You would never do that. Like a gate is on a city or a house or a fence, what does a gate do? Keeps things in, right? So like in the ancient world, you'd have a big city, right, surrounded by stones, and then you'd have a gate, and you'd have to open that gate to let people in. So if we were going to storm the gate on our horses, we would have to run through the gate, right? The gate is a defensive mechanism, right? Does that make sense, right? Gates. Go home, check out your gate, 
it's connected, right? It closes and opens. It doesn't like, you know, you don't run with it. You might run with it, which would be pretty funny. But okay, so Jesus is saying that gate to hell is not going to stay closed. Does that make sense? He said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Meaning that hell is not the death, not hell, Hades, death. Death is not the final destination. That with me, I'm building my church to take the message of life. That my message of life will not be stopped by the gates of hell, by the gates of death. That my message of life will bring the dead back to life. So Jesus is using this play on words again here. And he's saying that, that when Jesus is going to go to the cross and die for our sins and rise from the grave, he's declaring that death does not win. That death has been defeated. That Jesus has victory. And over those that have said yes to Jesus, death is not their eternal destination. Isn't that good news? That life is their eternal destination. And that us, with the message of Jesus now, have the power to overcome death because of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. Here's what Jesus is saying, is that as we build our lives on Jesus, we learn to live in confidence. We learn to live in confidence that death is not the final say here, but instead that death no longer will keep people hostage because Jesus now gives life to them when they say yes to him. What is it that people fear most? This week I was talking to my little nine-year-old, Hallie, and I said to her something about something, and she said, well, Daddy, that's scary. And I said, well, why are you scared? And she said, because I don't want to die. I was like, dang, my nine-year-old's thinking about, like, not falling off. We were talking about Christmas lights, falling off the ladder or something. I was listening to another podcast this week, and it was a really respectable person. He, he talked about he thinks of his mortality daily. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you often are thinking about death? I just think the reality is that I read a study this week, and out of, out of, of all the studies done on fear of, of fear of death, death is in the top 10 of things that people are afraid of, often top three. Like, people are afraid of death. And I understand, because mortality is what we see in the mirror when we see each other, when we look at ourselves. And every time my kid wants to jump on the trampoline, I'm like, you don't, be afraid, don't fall off, you know, stay in the middle, right? Like, we're like pre-programmed for this. But I think as we understand what Jesus is saying here, that he's saying that we can learn to live in confidence, that, that, that death is not the end for the believer who has said yes to Jesus. Don't miss this. This is big. Hang, stay with me for a second. What Jesus is saying is, if you are building your life on him, that you are part of his church, that death is not the end for you. That death will not hold you. That death will not prevail against you. That we don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus came to the cross to die for us. And then he rose from the grave, declaring victory over death. And that means the gates of hell are not closed, guys. That we are alive forever. And this means that when you close your eyes for the very last time, and maybe that means you're 99 years old in your bed, or you're in a hospital room because you live in a broken world, or because you've stood up for your faith and you've lost your life, just like one of our pastor friends in the Middle East. It doesn't matter when you close your eyes the last time, you don't have to fear death because you have life eternal through Jesus. And friends, isn't that good news? That your life doesn't start. Eternal life, do you guys know this? Eternal life does not start when you close your eyes and take your last breath. 
You know when eternal life started? The day, the moment, the second you said yes to Jesus. If you're in this room and you have said yes to Jesus, you are already alive forever. You might close your eyes. You might not be in this world anymore. You might just change your location. But that's the good news. Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against this. Now, I want you to slow down. Hold, let that sink in. How could it change your life knowing that you do not need to fear death? You might say, oh, well, that's easy. That's easy for you to say. It's not easy for any of us to say. But if we let that sink in and we really think about it, you do not need to be afraid of living your life for Jesus because Jesus has already taken care of the problem. And eternal life is yours. And you're living in it now. And you might say, well, this doesn't seem like, like heaven should seem. Well, it's not. We're not there yet. But it means that Jesus now gives you the power to live the best, to live out his plan for your life. Sin doesn't hold you anymore. You can go and you can live the way that Jesus calls you to live, and you have the power to now do it. You can experience the best that Jesus gives, has to offer on this earth while we're still here with the view of glory and beauty and heaven in front of us. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against Jesus' church. And that's amazing news. And that's why we can live in confidence, because we know we're living on the right foundation. Let me, let, me, let me close this down for us. Notice what the last thing Jesus says. He says this. He's telling Peter and the guys, Hey, Peter, I will give the, you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. You're like, why did he tell us to go tell everybody and then not tell anybody? Right? That's because he wanted to wait till after he died and rose from the grave because they didn't understand any of this yet, and we're just barely starting to get it. Here's, here's like the last thing I think that Jesus wants to tell them. He says, look, I'm giving you guys the keys to the kingdom. It's like when you guys got the keys to your car for the first time. It's yours. Take good care of it. It's like when you got the keys to your first house. That's your kingdom, right? You can invite people in. He's saying, now go, based on this mountain of truth that I am the Messiah, go and invite people in. So this is just the last thing Jesus says. Jesus calls us to invite others into the kingdom. He tosses you guys the keys. Do I have any keys on me? He toss, somebody tossed me some keys. He tossed, nobody got keys? He tosses them the keys. First one, first one has got keys. Here he goes. Jesus says, Peter. And he probably did it behind the back because Jesus is cool. Here's the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Go and invite people into the kingdom because that gate down there is not ever going to be closed again. And so what he says to us is, the path to life for us is putting our faith in him and then letting it flow through us into the lives of others. Realizing that he is the Messiah is what brings us into life. Realizing that we have the confidence to stand on this rock, this church that he's built on his foundation is what brings life through us and then we need to go pass it on to other people. And so Jesus says, make sure you have the right point of view so you can live like you know you're called to. Let me close with a picture there's two bodies of water in Israel. This is a NASA satellite view not of Israel. It's pretty cool. At the very top is the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. And then between the Sea of Galilee, uh, below that is the Jordan River. And below that is what they call the Dead Sea. Somebody say Dead Sea. And so really, if you notice, it's one uh, 
Two bodies of water, but they're being fed by the same streams. And so if you pull up a map and you'll look above the Sea of Galilee, you'll notice that it's being fed by all these tributaries. Interesting to think about, it's the same water that feeds the Sea of Galilee as that feeds the Dead Sea. So here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's green. Go swimming in it. Just enjoy your, your, your time in the Sea of Galilee. They catch fish. This is where Peter and James and John caught their fish for a living. This is where Jesus did miracles where they caught fish. This is a picture of the Dead Sea. Now, you might say it looks pretty because it is. It's very pretty. God makes beautiful things. But the Dead Sea is full of salt. And so when the water goes there, it just evaporates and it leaves these like salt structures. So what's the difference? It's the same water. It's the same water that feeds both of these bodies of water. What's the difference? The Sea of Galilee lets the water pass through it. The Dead Sea, the water stops. Which one are you in a spiritual metaphor? Are you letting the truth of Jesus flow through you, bringing you life, bringing just lush beauty into your world, and then letting that flow into the lives of others? Or does it stop with you and not go any further? I think sometimes when we live our lives and it's all about us and it's all about trying to figure out our own foundations and build our lives on our own rocks and, well, everything stops with us. Just like the Dead Sea. And then it evaporates and it goes away. But when we let it flow through us, the water, the living water of Jesus Christ flow through us, not only does it give us life, but it allows us to pass through and to give life to others. And so this week, my challenge for you is, which one are you? You, you might look at your life and say, well, right now, I, I feel like the Dead Sea. Like right now, I feel like nothing's really flowing through me. Here's what I'd ask you to do. How are you viewing Jesus? I think this is what it comes down to. What's your point of view? And if you say, well, my point of view of Jesus is I'm just looking at him from afar. Or I'm just letting what other people say about him kind of dictate how I feel. Then here's my challenge to you this Christmas. It's to get closer. It's to change your point of view. It's to maybe pick up his word. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one for you. Just open it. And read what Matthew has to say about him. Or, or, or meet with somebody you know who's a Christian, who's a believer, and grab coffee, somebody you respect, and just ask them, how do you see Jesus? Or, or grab a good book. Here's one I'd recommend. It's called More Than a Carpenter. I'll send this out by Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell. Short read. It's so good. It tells you who Jesus is. You might be here, and you might say, well, I've been a Christian for a long time. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and but my view of him's got kind of dusty. I've just kind of stepped back. My lens is not very clear. And my encouragement to you is just sit at his feet this Christmas and ask him to reveal to you the beauty and the truth and the richness and the deepness of who he is. Because his word says that will change us from the inside out. We can stop being the Dead Sea and we can start letting the beautiful living waters of Jesus pass through us that give life everyone around us. Jesus' promises are so beautiful. Let's get close enough to know him and let's get close enough to him to see him. Would you pray with me?